This is Christ, Culture, and Coffee, a podcast designed to help equip Christians to be able to defend their faith and be confident in their faith. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Christ, Culture, and Coffee. I am Robbie Lashua, your host on the show. Uh, We are here to talk about apologetics and theology and worldview and coffee. And uh, I am alone today. My co-host, Tyler Hurley, is on vacation with his family, having a good time. Uh, So I am here solo to continue our series on worldview. Uh, Today we're going to be talking about the naturalistic or the atheistic worldview. Uh, We're going to go through the seven basic questions that we talked about last week, and then we're going to see if it's logical, if it's factual, and if it is livable. Now before we uh, get into the meat of the program, we always start our show with a coffee tip, and um, we're on, I think this is episode 169 or 170, so we've done a ton of coffee tips, and I meet people uh, at church or out and about that listen to the show, and there is this, uh, I'd say it's a false assumption out there that because we talk about coffee and the science of coffee, and we give good coffee tips for a better cup of coffee at home and all that kind of stuff, um, people assume that Tyler and I are extreme coffee snobs. And I'm talking like really highfalutin, nose in the air, coffee snobs. Um, You know, we've talked about how you need to boil your coffee to reheat it instead of put it in the microwave because it changes the flavor, how French press is great and how pour overs are great, you know, all these things, what kind of beans to use. And so people um, have this assumption that we do all of those things every single day of our life. Like we take a good half hour to make one cup of coffee, you know. Um, And the truth of it is we don't do that at all. Um, We like good coffee and I, I do enjoy at times spending some time making it and doing it the right way but honestly there are other days where you just need to make a cup of coffee and you have a Keurig or you have a drip cup of coffee or you're reheating something in the microwave so we are not coffee snobs and so I thought to to give you a coffee tip or uh, a coffee recipe that is really like a low unrefined uh, coffee drink that I've been enjoying a lot lately just to show that I'm not like an extreme coffee snob. And so the coffee tip for today is this really good recipe that's very unrefined, but it is so delicious. And I wanted to share it with you guys because for the past, uh, I don't know, a few weeks, this is what I've been drinking a lot. So it's hot here. Uh, we live in Phoenix. And it's hot here in the Valley. And so iced coffee is the, the thing right now. <clears throat> and so what I've been doing uh, for the last month or so is I've been taking oat milk or almond milk because I'm trying to stay away from cow milk right now. And I, uh, I put it in a glass, you know, like a cup of it or a cup and a half, whatever. And then I put in one huge tablespoon. Now, don't hate me for this, but I put in one huge tablespoon of instant coffee into the oat milk or almond milk and stir it up so it all dissolves. I don't put it in water. I put it straight into the almond milk or the oat milk. And then I like to put a little bit of like brown sugar syrup in it. Uh, you can make that at home if you just boil brown sugar in a little bit of water. You can turn it into syrup or you can buy it at the store. But it is amazing. Oat milk, instant coffee, brown sugar syrup, and then ice. Oh, it is like it's luscious and it's sweet and it's refreshing. It is, it's the best unrefined coffee drink ever. And I don't know if I can even qualify it as coffee because it's instant coffee, but 
it is awesome. And so I would highly recommend you guys trying it with oat milk or almond milk, instant coffee, and some brown sugar syrup, or even honey. Honey's pretty good in there too. So just to let you in on a little thing I've been making, it's quick, it's easy, it's delicious, and it is refreshing. So that is the coffee tip for today. Uh, we don't always have to be super high and refined about it. Sometimes just a good, sweet, strong cup of coffee is enough to keep us going. All right, well, let's move into talking about the topic for today. So <clears throat> last week, Tyler and I introduced worldview and what it is, how people perceive reality, assumptions, presuppositions that they have about the universe and about themselves and about where we're going after death. And we are kind of following the guideline of James Sire's book, The Universe Next Door. And he categorizes seven questions that every worldview needs to answer. <clears throat> so let me run through these questions. And then what we're going to do is we're going to see how the naturalistic, atheistic worldview answers these seven basic questions. So here are the questions. The first question is, what is ultimate reality? The second question is, what is the nature of external reality? The third question is, what is a human being? The fourth question is, what happens to a human being at death? The fifth question is, why is it possible to know anything? This is in philosophy, uh, uh, epistemology, right? How can we know that we know that we know? <clears throat> Question six is how do we know right and wrong? So this is ethics, morality. And then the seventh question is what is the purpose of human history? So question number one, what is ultimate reality? What is prime reality? What is the really real behind everything? Obviously, as a Christian, I believe there is a God and he's a specific type of being. But for the atheist, they would claim that matter exists eternally and is all that there is. There's just the physical. God does not exist. A supernatural does not exist. There is just the natural material universe. Um, this <clears throat> was a, a very popular uh, phrase uh, by Carl Sagan. He wrote a book called Cosmos, uh, which was published in 1980. And he also had a TV show back in the day. And he would start every episode of the show with this line, which is also the opening line of his book, Cosmos. Uh, let me read this to you. He says, the cosmos is all that is or ever was or ever will be. See, that is a worldview claim that all that exists is the material universe. That's, that is ultimate reality. There's no God beyond that. It's just material. It's just the natural universe. Um, so we, we look at this, and it, it's interesting because um, they would say that uh, most naturalists or atheists would say that that nature is just composed of matter. So, so we would, as Christians, we would say, look, the universe is made up of a material for sure. There's material tables and trees and stars and supernova and stuff like that. But there's also immaterial, right? Like laws of physics. Um, we would say that there is uh, consciousness. We would say, say there's supernatural phenomenon, uh, emotions, things like this that aren't merely physical, there is a, a metaphysical, immaterial aspect to them. The atheist would say, no, the, the universe is only composed of matter. It's not composed of mind. It's not composed of spirit. It's just only matter. All right. So question number one, what's ultimate reality? The natural universe matter existing eternally. 
So question number two, according to the atheistic worldview, uh, what is the nature of external reality, right? So that, that is the question about what is this universe that's out there? And question number one and two are somewhat similar for them, right? They would say that the, the universe exists in a uniformity uh, of cause and effect and that it's a closed system, meaning that there is no, uh, there's nothing outside of it. Um, there is no supernatural who can interject into it. There's just the universal cause and effect system that's out there. So um, it's not open for reordering by a transcendent being. Um, human beings are part of the mechanism, so um, we actually don't have an effect on the the natural universe either um uh, and the human manifesto too actually claims that there is no evidence for the supernatural at all so question number one what is the ultimate reality the natural universe question number two what's the nature of it it's it's uniform it's a cause and effect universe and it's closed there's nothing outside of it that can interject into it now you get down to question number three uh, what is a human being according to the naturalistic worldview? And they would say that human beings are complex machines, right? We're wet machines. Uh, they would talk about uh, personality or this idea of the soul. It's not a, a metaphysical thing, but it's just an interrelation of chemical and physical properties. And uh, when pushed on it, they'll have to say, listen, we don't understand how it all works, but because there is no supernatural, we know that a human being doesn't have a supernatural component to him. So they're trying to be logical in their system. And if you assume that the material universe is all there is, then a human being only can be com compromised, uh, be composed of material. They can't have a soul, right? Does it make sense? Uh, that That's one of the things that's logical about this. If there is no supernatural, a human being doesn't have a supernatural component or an immaterial component to him. All we have is our material. I want to read to you a couple of quotes here. Um, this one is from Pierre-Jean uh, Georges Cabanis, um, and I thought this was really interesting. He lived from 1757 to 1808, um, but he said, the brain secretes thought as the liver secretes bile. So your thought is just a biological product much like defecation is just a biological product that your that your kidneys uh, create, right? Um, very interesting statement from him, but that is what is believed by uh, by uh, the atheists that our thoughts aren't coming from an immaterial place; they're just chemicals reacting and, and statements. That's what thoughts are. Um, they would also say that uh, cause and effect. Being in a closed universe, uh, everything is actually determined for us. Everything is cause and effect. Uh, everything. And so everything that we've done or do is all predicated on a previous cause that's affecting us. And so freedom or free will really doesn't exist uh, in the atheist movement or the naturalist movement because everything is just merely cause and effect. It's a deterministic uh, worldview. So question number one, question number two, question number three, now we're on to four. What happens to a person at death? Well, now think about it. To be consistent, if there is no supernatural, if it's only material, when the material thing dies, there isn't that thing existing anymore. So when a person dies, they become extinct. 
death is the extinction of the personality of the individual. There isn't something living on after the body is dead. Uh, one time I talked with a guy, he was the president of an atheist society in Los Angeles, and I was talking to him about what happened to humans at death, and I said, so do you just think that they don't exist anymore? And he said, well, no, of course I don't think when people die they don't exist. And I was shocked, because I'm like, really, what do you mean? And again, what I was meaning by that is that their soul is living on, and they're still conscious and aware and alive somewhere. Um, but what he meant was, just because a person dies, it doesn't mean their body evaporates into non-existence. And he said, well, no, when a person dies, their body's still here on earth and, and that material uh, gets absorbed into the ground. And so they're still around kind of in a material way. And I thought, oh, well, that's fascinating. Yeah, so he's not thinking they, they don't exist because all he thinks they are is a body and that material still exists somewhere, but in a new form kind of a thing. It was very interesting to me. But they don't think that a person continues to exist after the death of their body. If you're just a machine, once the machine stops working, the person is gone. There is no soul. There is no continuance after that. Um, this is that quote from the Humanist Manifesto Part 2. And that's kind of like an a atheist doctrinal statement, basically, the Humanist Manifesto. Um, they said in, in the Humanist Manifesto 2, Quote, there is no credible evidence that the human being survives after physical death. Um, Ernest Nagel said, quote, human destiny is an episode between two oblivions. So you didn't exist prior to your birth and you do not exist after your death. It's an episode of existence between two oblivions. So what happens to a person at death, they go into the ground or they're cremated and their material gets uh, rearranged into a new way and they get absorbed back into the universe. Question number five, why is it possible to know anything? The answer from the naturalist is that uh, through our innate and autonomous human reason, including the methods of science, we can know the universe. <clears throat> so they say that the universe and the world is in its normal state. So this is interesting. They can't claim that it got broken or um, it, it isn't how it should be because as Christians, we would say that. We would say human beings and the, the world aren't as they should be. They're broken from what God intended us to be uh, when he created us in Genesis 1. But the naturalist doesn't think that. They would say things are what they are because there isn't a should. There isn't a designer who made it to be a certain way. So however it is, is the way that it's supposed to be. And we can know things through our innate autonomous human reasoning and through being aided through the discipline of science. That's how we can come to know things about ourselves and things about uh, the universe. Question number six, how do we know what is right and wrong? Uh, the, the answer that, to that uh, on the... On the Atheist worldview, and there's, there's, there's some varying opinions on this, but to my knowledge, there's only one guy who thinks that morals are objective based on an atheistic worldview. Most of them have to admit that ethics, or right and wrong, is subjective. That it's, it's related only to human beings, that right and wrong is man-made, and that we have become a law unto ourselves. So we have created these moral... Um, expectations of our species. And that is where right or wrong comes from. 
So um, we evolved, we became self-conscious and self-determined, and as this was happening, ethics also evolved (laughs) within the human species. Um, And we're going to talk about some some issues with that, but I'm just trying to lay out what they believe the case is. The majority of them, not everyone exactly, but just like any belief, there's kind of a wide spectrum of ideas, but this is the generalized belief of what a naturalist thinks. Uh, And then the sixth question, um, what's the purpose of human history? Um, The atheists would would claim there isn't really an overarching purpose to human history. Um, It's a a linear system of time, and there's events that are linked by cause and effect, but it isn't going anywhere. There isn't a trajectory towards its end um, or a purpose to it. It just is what it is, and uh, they actually think, you know, once once our solar system, uh, once once the sun burns out, right, um, that everything is going to just die off, uh, and and there'll just be, you know, I guess some buildings and, and things that can survive on this earth, but it'll just become basically a a museum to what humanity had been in the past, and all of the wars and all of the poetry and all of the story and all of the love and everything that humans were will just uh, become extinct uh, on this globe, um, and so there's no purpose to uh, human existence. Um, George Gaylord Simpson said, quote, man was not, sorry, he said, quote, man was certainly not the goal of evolution, which evidently had no goal, end quote. So that, that is the purpose. Uh, there isn't a purpose. There is, there is no goal of evolution. Uh, Richard Dawkins says, quote, natural selection is the blind watchmaker, Blind because it does not see ahead, does not plan consequences, has no purpose in view. So this is, uh, from some famous atheists, this is their belief about the purpose of humanity, the purpose of human history. So now, with with that in mind, and that being the worldview, uh, the answers to the worldview questions according to a naturalistic or atheistic worldview, let's, let's talk about... Is it logical? Is it factual? And is it livable? Right? Because those are those are three criteria that we should critique critique any worldview on, including our own, including Christianity. Is it logical? Is it factual? Is it livable? When you come to the logical side of it, what, what you're wanting to do is look at the seven questions to make sure that none of them contradict each other. So if the atheist says a human being is only material only a, a, a mechanism, right? But then uh, they say, what happens after death? They say, well, there's a soul that lives on forever. Wait a second, that's a contradiction, right? So all we're doing when we look at logical is, is it logical within itself? Is it contradicting itself as a system? Um, and as bleak as this is, that there's no purpose to human history and all of the greatest events in our our history as a species uh, mean nothing in eternity, right? Because the universe will go on without us after we experience heat death in our universe or in our solar system. Um, uh, as bleak as that is, it's, it's consistent. They're, they are being logical. And so I, I think that the naturalistic worldview as a system is somewhat logical. Um, but then that's not the only test we have for a good worldview, right? So it doesn't contradict itself per se, but is it factual? 
And now that's where we want to spend a little bit of time. Um, factual means, okay, you can have a system that's all buttoned up and, and it works within itself, but does it work with the real world and the facts that we know are out there? Does it match up with what's actually in the world? And that's what we want to look at next. Um, there are numerous things that make atheism non-factual, uh, but we're only going to look at a couple. Um, the first one is this, this whole idea that there are no metaphysics, that there is no um, uh, supernatural or immaterial aspect to the universe is just false. It's, it's just fallacious. Um, one of the ways you can, you can talk about this is, is with uh, consciousness. So when it comes to consciousness, nobody really even knows what it is. We recognize it. But we don't know what it is. And so the idea that a material universe that has no guiding principles, right? The, the atheists say there was no purpose to evolution. There was no goal intended. The blind watchmaker, blind because it doesn't care, right? It doesn't have intention. So there's no person behind it like we in the Christian worldview think. So with that, you would say how can a strictly material universe – um, develop this thing called consciousness, which isn't a material thing. How does immaterial come from material? It doesn't make sense. It seems like you'd have to have immaterial existing first that creates material and immaterial. But for, for, for a blind, non-purposed, no-person material universe to evolve into an immaterial thing like consciousness, that seems like a very big leap in logic. And we know that we're conscious. Uh, we know that we're awake and alive. And we know that people go unconscious and die. And so what is that? What is consciousness and how did it evolve and come to be? That's a, that's a big question that a lot of atheists cannot answer. They say, well, it's brain chemicals and we'll figure it out one day. Um, but is it brain chemicals? We don't know that. That's an assumption, but it's because they're already assuming a naturalistic worldview that they're trying to make the facts fit in instead of saying, let's look at the facts and let's, let's curtail our, let's, let's cultivate our worldview from the facts. Um, another thing that, that, is um, non-factual about the, the atheistic worldview. As they say, you know, there is no supernatural, there is no metaphysical component to a human being like a soul. Uh, a couple of things are wrong with this, but one of them I wanted to hit on was near-death experiences. Near-death experiences. Now, there are some great books out there on it. Um, Imagine Heaven is a phenomenal book by John Burke, on uh, near-death experiences, story after story after story of medically verified um, near-death experiences. Um, now, there's another book, and I think it's called, oh, man, Eternal Life or Afterlife or something like that, uh, but it's by J.P. Moreland and Gary Habermas. And what I appreciate about it is that they, they talk about and give examples of near-death experiences, but then uh, J.P. talks about how near-death experiences – uh, actually debunk a naturalistic worldview. And here's why. Um, so there are cases of people, many, many cases of people, whose heart stops and their brain function stops. So that's heart dead and brain dead, right? So in Princess Bride, like that's dead dead, really dead, right? <laughs> Extremely dead, completely dead. Uh, the machine is done on the atheistic worldview. 
And um, there's been experiences where people have been dead in that state, no brain activity, no heart activity for hours, and then they get resuscitated. And they come back and they explain things that are verifiable in the real world that happened while they were dead, dead. And there's, and you say, how can they explain that? How did they know what was happening, you know, at their parents' house? Or they come back and say, hey, is there, uh, you know, I met this person who said they were my older sibling and they said to tell you about this outfit. And parents will say things like, oh man, we had a kid before you were born, but we never really told anybody because they died and it was just too painful. Um, but there are some near-death experiences which are crazy because they're, they're heart dead, brain dead people who were blind from birth. And then they come back and describe things they saw. Unbelievable. Now, there's a lot of views on near-death experiences. Um, some people take them to be valid and that you're experiencing the real world, which I, I think you're experiencing something real because you can come back and the things you saw are verified in the real world. Um, but then I know other people who will say, listen, I wouldn't put too much stock in it because it can be demons, right, that are messing with you or, or, or falsely leading you or affecting you or parading around as angels of light and things like that. And we do need to be cautious of that because that kind of thing can happen. But my point is that if a person is brain dead and heart dead, for hours, the machine's not working anymore. What is this thing they experienced? Who was the person experiencing these things while the body was dead? If all we are is our body, how can you experience something while the body's dead? You can't. It screams that human beings have a soul and that our soul is the thing that experiences uh, near-death experiences or experiences things in this life. We have a body, we are a soul, and it is us who experiences things. So I remember J.P. Moreland in class I took with him, he explained it like this. He talked about how um, when we see, we use our eyes to see, but who is doing the seeing? And he said, it's not our eyes that are doing the seeing, I'm seeing things. And he said, it's easy to, to explain this to people because you can do a thought experiment. You can tell them to close their eyes and see Paris or see London or see a pink elephant or whatever. And I can close my eyes right now and see a pink elephant. And so I'm not using my eyes when they're closed, but, I, but I'm seeing something. So what's the thing that's doing the seeing? It's me. It's me. And I don't need my eyes to see. I see things when I'm dreaming, right? And I'm not saying that they're real, right? They're, they're in my mind and, you know, it can be affected by bad pizza. It could be spiritual, whatever. But it's not my eyes that see. I, the soul, see and I use my eyes to see because I can see without my eyes. And that's, that's important for us to think through. Um, so, so, again, NDEs, consciousness, those types of things really scream that the, the naturalistic worldview is not factual because it doesn't account for all the things that are happening in the world, the things that are occurring when it comes to the supernatural. The atheistic naturalistic worldview does not measure up factually, factually with what we know of the real world, specifically when they say that the immaterial doesn't exist. Um, and this is where I, I do want to take a little a little rabbit trail, I guess, and talk about science as a practice versus scientism, okay? Science versus scientism. It's really important to make this distinction because there's a huge difference between the two. Science 
is a methodology to discover things about the material universe. And science is great. Science is a really good tool to measure repeatability, right? And to, and to look for patterns and to, to, to discover how God has created the material universe. Uh, scientism is a philosophy, not a methodology, Scientism is committed to believing only what can be scientifically proven. Now think about this. That means it's a faith-based position. It's faith that only things that can be known are known through science. And this is why, you know, um, when, when you turn on talk shows or whatever and they, they talk about spiritual things, they bring on scientists and you go, why is a biologist qualified to talk about metaphysics? He doesn't even believe in metaphysics. And it's because a large portion of our society assumes that the universe is only material and that the only way to know about the material universe is through science. But that isn't something you can prove through science. That is an assumption. That is a philosophy. That is a presupposition. It's a belief. It's faith. It, it's, it's a faith position when you really get down to it. The problem is a lot of times scientism is called science. And then it's used against people who believe in the supernatural. So I want to give you an example of this happening. Uh, there was a debate a while ago on the existence of God. And it was between Jay Richards, who's a Christian, and Christopher Hitchens. This is prior to him dying. And um, Christopher Hitchens, uh, in the opening statements... Uh, he asked Jay Richards, do you believe Jesus Christ was born of a virgin? Do you believe he was resurrected from the dead? Okay, so that's a good question. And so Jay Richards answered, yes, I believe Jesus Christ was born of a virgin and that he rose from the dead. When he stated that, Hitchens said, quote, I rest my case. This is an honest guy who has just made it very clear science has nothing to do with his worldview, end quote. So what is going on here? Hitchens is arguing that J. Richard's worldview um, wasn't scientific, but really what was happening is he was, he was showing that J. Richard's didn't adhere to scientism. The presupposition, the belief, the faith-based position that the, that the universe is only material and the only way we can know about it is through science. It's because Jay Richards believes that the universe isn't only material, but there is an immaterial aspect to it. There is mind. There is our supernatural beings. There is a God. And so Hitchens is trying to... Um, sway people away from even listening to Richards based on the idea that he doesn't hold the scientism, but he calls it science. His view has nothing to do with science. No, his view butts heads with scientism, but Jay Richards believes science is a good tool, and he practices science as a good tool, and he does a pretty great job at it. So Hitchin was supposed to be providing reasons for the belief that God does not exist, in this debate. That's what you do. You, you say, this is my position, and here are reasons why I believe God doesn't exist, why naturalism is true. But all he did with this statement was to dismiss J. Richards based on his assumptions about the universe. That's not an argument. I mean, think about it if it was flipped. If J. Richards said, would you say you don't believe God exists and that Jesus did not raise from the dead? 
And he said, yeah, I believe that. And he said, see, I rest my case, ladies and gentlemen. How can you take this guy seriously if he doesn't even believe in a metaphysic? Well, that's what, that's what you're here to debate. That's what you're talking about is, is there a God? Is there not a God? So just to say he doesn't agree with me, his view has nothing to do with science, it proves nothing. But Hitchens has uh, assumed scientism is science. And that's just not the case. That's just not the case at all. The reason for this is that scientism, if that's all, if, if that's true, it actually self-destructs. It, it cuts its own legs out from under it. Um, and the reason is this. Scientism, the belief that the material universe is all that exists and the only way to know about it is through science, that idea cannot be proven by science. So think about that. When somebody tells you that they only believe in things proven by science, you can ask them how that statement was proven by science. You see? How did, how, okay, so, so you, that's your belief. You only believe things proven by science. How was your belief proven to you by science? Well, it can't be because it's not something that can be measured by science. Science is really good as a tool to um, judge and to, to conclude things about the material universe. But science can't do that when it comes to ideas, thoughts, philosophies. You need different tools, tools of logic, not the scientific method, not repeatability over time, right? Uh, you need something different, a different tool for the job. So when people assume that scientism is true, that is what they're doing. It's an assumption that they haven't proven by science, but they only believe things that are proven by science. <laughs> so it self-destructs. It, it cuts its own legs out uh, from under it. Um, so if their statement is true, that they only believe things that science has proven, then their statement is false because they're disproving it by that very belief. So, so, so you, the, it, it, it is a self-destructive belief system. Uh, scientism is a philosophy, and it is actually, sadly, assumed prior to scientific discovery. They don't end with that after they've studied everything. They start with that presupposition. They start with that belief before they study something. You cannot come to the conclusion that scientism is true by studying science because you'd have to know everything about everything in the material universe to get to the point to say that it is only material and there's no supernatural. The other thing that's really odd about this is that scientism assumes that our thoughts or our minds are rational. Now think about that. How can you assume that you should be able to trust your thoughts? If it's just biochemical synapses firing, right? How can you trust that? But they all assume that they can trust their thoughts. They all assume that the natural laws are fixed. And they also assume that mathematics are trustworthy. It's, it's fascinating. How, how can you assume all of that? Where are you getting those ideas from? Well, you're not getting them from science, right? You're not getting them from science. You're getting them from somewhere else. All of these truth claims have to exist before scientific methodology can even get started. So how do you claim you only believe in things proven by scientific methodology? It can't be because you're assuming all of these other things are true about existence.
So uh, what if we, what we're seeing here is the idea that science is the way to true knowledge, but it actually is cutting itself off at the knees. It's, it's a self-refuting statement. It's like saying all sentences in English are false, right? That, that sentence I just said was in English. And the claim is that every sentence in English is false. And so if that's true, then what I just said about all sentences in English being false is also false. Do <laughs> you see the problem with it? It cuts its own legs out from under it. And scientism does something similar to that. And the truth of it is, in the real world, when we're talking about factual, is this worldview factual? Science is not the only manner in which to measure truth. It's not, it's not at all. Um, so think about this. Can you tell me the height of a giraffe by using a bathroom scale? You might be able to, because if you knew the length of the scale, you could probably measure pretty accurately, right? But a scale is a weight measurement instrument, and to measure height, you need a length uh, tool for measuring, right? So a bathroom scale is not the right tool for the job. Uh, so science is designed to measure the material world, and it does a really good job at, at um, measuring the material world. I think science is great, but it's not designed to measure the immaterial world. It's the wrong system of measurement for that job. So science as a methodology, as a measurement, has its limits, and the limits are it only applies to the material world. But because this methodology has limits, doesn't mean that the immaterial world doesn't exist, right? It just means that's not the right tool to measure it by. Uh, Greg Kokel from Stand to Reason has said this, quote, science has never advanced empirical evidence to show that supernatural events cannot happen. Instead, it has assumed prior to the evidence that the material world is all there is, end quote. And that's really important. It's true. They assume it before they study. They haven't concluded it after they study. You see, that's a big problem. So really, scientism is a faith-based position. Naturalism is a faith-based position. You're assuming before you've studied everything that the supernatural doesn't exist. And I, I do want to read you a, a very fascinating quote. This is from Harvard uh, genetics professor Richard Lewontin. Uh, listen to what he says here. Quote, Our willingness to accept scientific claims that are against common sense is a key to an understanding of the real struggle between science and the supernatural. We take the side of science in spite of the patent absurdity of some of its constructs, in spite of the tolerance of the scientific community for unsubstantiated just-so stories, because we have a prior commitment, a commitment to materialism. It is not that the methods and institutions of science somehow compel us to accept a material explanation of the phenomenal world, but on the contrary, that we are forced by our a priori adherence to a material cause to create an apparatus of investigation and set of concepts that produce material explanations, no matter how counterintuitive, no matter how mystifying to the uninitiated. Moreover, that materialism is absolute because we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. End quote.
And again, that was from Richard Lewontin. This is fascinating because he's saying, no, no, no. We, we haven't discovered that this is true. We've assumed it's true a priori before the facts. We've assumed this to be true. And then we've created an apparatus to measure things only according to our assumption because we can't allow a divine foot in the door. And it doesn't matter how counterintuitive. It doesn't match, matter how many unsubstantiated just-so stories are out there. We have to do this because we cannot allow the supernatural foot in the door. Is this crazy? This doesn't sound very uh, scientific, to be honest. And that's because it isn't. It isn't let's go out and discover what's the real, what the real world's like or what the universe is like. This is scientism. This is a faith-based position to where we believe this to be true and we are setting out to show it to be true and anything else outside of that we're assuming is not true. So this shows how the atheist has to eliminate certain answers prior to investigating them. It's assumed that the supernatural does not exist, and this assumption informs where the science or the evidence leads. So they don't believe in a resurrection or the miracles of Jesus because why? According to science, people don't come back from the dead. According to science, people can't walk on water. I don't believe in the virgin birth because according to science, virgins can't have children. So these, these types of statements prove their assumptions, not that those things didn't happen. So from my view, they're eliminating an aspect of reality before they even study and before they even investigate. And so they're actually missing out on things that are happening. But this is the assumption of the material, the naturalistic, the atheistic worldview. So there are so many reasons it's not factual with what's actually going on. And we can prove that. We can show that there is a metaphysic, that there is an immaterial aspect to human beings and to the universe. So it's logical within itself it's not factual with how the world really is. And now let's talk about, is it livable? Um, a couple of things about this. The, the number one thing I wanted to talk, well, not the number one, the first thing I wanted to talk about when it comes to this is that the, the idea of a cause and effect universe and that everything's determined prior to you getting here, that belief is very unlivable. Uh, let me explain why. Um, if that's the case, then human beings aren't really free, and we don't really have choice, because every choice I've ever made was determined by prior cause and effect, cause and effect, cause and effect, and I am just living out what the universe has blindly determined for me to live out. I've never chosen my clothes. I've never chosen what to study in school. I've never chosen what to do on any given day, and so when you, when you believe that's the case, what it would do is take away any responsibility from human beings for any choice they've ever made because they never really made a choice. It was determined for them. And yet, atheists um, get upset about religion, and they get upset about injustice. And I, and I would agree, we should be upset about injustice. But on an atheistic worldview, there, there are people just reacting and doing what they do. It's not unjust. It's just they had to do this because they were determined to by the universe. They couldn't have done differently. And now that's crazy because we all still want to throw people in jail and we want justice and we want punishment. But if we really believed this, then everyone's just doing what they do. That's a problem. 
because people don't live like that, and it's because it's unlivable. And we all know, no, people are responsible for their choices. And if you make a bad choice, there are consequences to a bad choice. We don't blame the universe for it. We blame the person who could have done otherwise. We all know that's the case, and we know that's the case within ourselves. So determinism, in an atheistic worldview, it's not livable. The other thing that's often funny about it is that the atheist, uh, you know, the famous ones especially, who write books and speak, they act as if what they're doing is good and they're proud of their writings and their books and their speaking. But the truth of it is, they didn't really do any of it, right? Because it was just determined by the universe. So uh, they shouldn't even be able to take credit for it because they're just a mechanism that's performing what was determined for them to do. But they act like there's virtue in the hard work they've put into things, when in reality, no, you're just doing what you wanted to do, what, what you were determined to do. You never chose to do any of it. You're not that great at all. And see, nobody lives that out, right? Uh, the atheist cannot live out a deterministic view of the world. It's unlivable. They also are trying to uh, convert people to atheism. They're trying to get us and persuade us by reason and logic, right, and science. Uh, they're trying to persuade us to become atheists and to leave religion behind. Well, if we're determined, why are you even mad that I believe in religion, right? You, you shouldn't be. So this deterministic idea that everything is cause and effect and you can't choose to do other than what you do, it's a very unlivable position. On um, The second thing about livability is when it comes to the view of morality, right? You remember their view of right and wrong. It is uh, uh, evolved in humans, and as human cultures developed, we've kind of evolved an ethic or morality to go with it. Um, this is a very inept and unlivable view of the world because it makes morality subjective, not objective, right? Morality is not something that's out there and it's a law that's binding on us. It's something that has come from within us as human beings, something that we have created or evolved within, and each culture has their own different sets of rights and wrongs and ethics. Um, this is really unlivable <clears throat> because everybody believes that there are um, morals that uh, apply to every person no matter what culture or what time period or what place that they live in, right? Murder is always wrong. Torturing babies for fun is always wrong no matter if you are in India or in Arizona or in New York or in South America or wherever you are, it's wrong. And it doesn't matter what time period you live in either. It's wrong. And just because a certain culture agrees that things are okay, like rounding up six million Jews and killing them in concentration camps, it didn't make it right that the Germans believed that as a group. Because we imposed our will on them and said, actually, no, that's wrong because there is an objective moral standard that all human beings have to live under, you see? So it's not just culturally, um, uh, cultural ethics. Uh, no, there's a higher morality out there for everybody. <clears throat> uh, Greg Kokel, I want to read to you another, uh, another uh, quote from Greg Kokel. He's awesome with Stand to Reason, uh, talking about oughtness, like should you do this? You shouldn't do this, you should do this. He says, quote, if a moral absolute exists, it is fair to ask the question, what kind of a thing is it? It's not a physical thing. A moral thing is not physical. 
It doesn't extend into space. It doesn't weigh something. It has no physical qualities or characteristics. It is a non-physical thing that really exists. It's an immaterial thing, something that you know exists, but you can't get at with any of your five senses. I think that's fascinating. When you say you should act like this, you should do this, you shouldn't do that, those moral statements that are objective, what is that? Well, it's a real thing that exists, but it's immaterial. It's immaterial. So any moral ought or should comes from beyond the natural universe. It's like the laws. It's, it's a law. There are these, these fixed ideas that are binding upon human beings. They can't be explained by anything that happens in the universe, and it can't be reduced to things men do in the universe. Uh, morality transcends the natural order, which means that it requires a transcendent cause, that it isn't something we have created. Uh, God is the law giver. God is the standard by which we are supposed to live, and we all fall short. And I've, I've often thought about this. So with the livability of atheism, when I do something that's wrong, if I assume atheism is true, what I'm really saying is I am breaking a code of conduct that we as human beings have created, which who cares? Like, why is that a bad thing? It's not bad. It's just a preference, right? Like, we prefer this type of thing as human beings. But to break it really isn't bad because I've, if I'm part of humanity, I've created the standard. Why can't I create a new standard? But the other thing that's odd to me is the, the feeling of guilt. Like, number one, what is guilt on a naturalistic worldview? Um, guilt, we would all, we all know what I, what it is when I say that, but when you really start to describe it, it is a yucky feeling that you get inside when you do something that you know you weren't supposed to do. So it's fascinating to think, you know, internally what you are supposed to do and what you're not supposed to do. And when you break that, you feel bad about it, especially when you're a kid. Now you can keep breaking things and, uh, you get over feeling bad about it. But on an atheistic worldview, what is the feeling of guilt and why haven't we evolved past that? It's some defect because if survival of the fittest is the overarching moral in the blind watchmaker evolutionary process, why don't we evolve past guilt so we can continue to thrive and to be fit and to, you know, rape as many people as we can so that we can procure our seed to the next generation? Guilt is a very odd thing in the naturalistic worldview. And yet, it's something that we all actually uh, experience in the real world. So th this idea that morals are stuff we create, it isn't livable, because why guilt? It also isn't livable because deep down, we all know that we believe people should or should not do certain things. For instance, atheists believe that we all should become atheists. That's what they're trying to convince us to do. Why do they think that that should be an overarching idea for everybody if we can just create our own rights and wrongs, right? It's a fascinating uh, belief. And so when it comes down to uh, the atheistic worldview, I think their biggest flaws are experiences in the real world point to a supernatural. And there's tons of different ways to, to show that and evidences. And then secondly, they have no leg to stand on when it comes to morality. And I do want to make a distinction here. I'm not saying that atheists cannot live good moral lives. 
I think that they can, and I know some that do. I know some atheists who have better marriages than a lot of Christians I know. So I'm not saying atheists can't live morally. I'm not saying they're all crazy anarchists. Nothing like that at all. What I'm saying is their worldview doesn't have any reasons for good and evil to even exist. They don't have any reason to stand on for right and wrong even being a thing. They're borrowing from our worldview. Frank Turek calls it stealing from God. They're stealing from our worldview to say there's a right and wrong when they need to show why right and wrong is a thing within their worldview. Um, and so it's so funny to me when uh, atheists will, will argue about how horrible the God of the Old Testament is, right? They'll say, look at how atrocious this guy is. He's swallowing people up by opening up the earth and swallowing whole families. And he commands Joshua to go in and to kill men, women, child, animal in these different cities. He is a maniacal extremist God, right? And those things are in the Bible, but the bigger question should be, why do you think that's wrong, and why should I even care that you think it's wrong? Where are you getting this idea that right and wrong exist? Where are you getting this idea that it's not good to swallow people up in the earth, right? What they're doing is they're borrowing from a Christian worldview to say we should be kind and loving and not harm people, right? But really on their worldview, it's just a preference thing. If culture creates ethics, it's just preference. Uh, Greg Kokel, he, he uh, talks about morality and he says, you know, is it like insulin to a diabetic where they need to have it to survive? Or is it like ice cream flavors where it's just preference and everybody has their own favorite ice cream? Morals are like insulin. They're a specific thing. There is objective right or wrong. It's not just preference. And atheists betray that they believe it's just preference when they say that the God of the Old Testament is evil and wrong and bad. Because if they were being honest with their worldview and they were living it out, they would say, eh, he can do whatever he wants because there really isn't a right or wrong. It's just human preference. They could say, I don't like it, but I can't say that he's wrong and that's horrendous. But they don't believe it. They believe that there are moral right and wrongs, and they even believe that the Christian God's supposed to adhere to certain moral rights and wrongs. It's fascinating. So um, when it comes to this worldview, it's, I think it's pretty logical within itself. I don't think it's factual, and I definitely don't think it's livable. You can't live out determinism, and you cannot live out this idea that morality is just evolved, and it's cultural, and it's preference. Um, it's not livable at all, and atheists do not uh, live out that type of a thing. So I hope this is helpful. I hope that... Um, um, you're thinking through worldview questions. I hope as a Christian believer, you're thinking through, what is my worldview? What's ultimate reality? What's the nature of nature? <clears throat> what is a human being? Where are we going when we die? All of these questions are big for us to know, <clears throat> and they all need to work together, and they all need to work in the real world, and they need to be something that we can actually live out. So our purpose again for this is to equip you to be ready to defend your faith, but also to have confidence in your faith that what we as Christians believe is real. No matter if it's popular, no matter if it's unpopular, no matter if we're persecuted for it, no matter if we have freedom to, to express it, it's true for all people in all places and all times. And that's what we believe, that Jesus Christ is God's son. He came to die on the cross for us and that by trusting in him, we can have eternal life. And apart from him, we cannot have fellowship with God. It's exclusive. 
Jesus is the only way, and it's because he's the only sacrifice that can take care of our human problem, which is sin. And so we hope that these these podcasts really equip you to talk with your unsaved friends, family, neighbors, your atheist friends, your Muslim friends. And I want you to have atheist friends. And I want you to have Muslim friends. I want you to have Mormon friends. I want you to have Hindu friends, right? We need to have people who who aren't already um, believers in our circles because we're supposed to go out and to be representatives of God as his imagers, but also as his ambassadors, bringing the message of reconciliation. And so that's why Tyler and I make this podcast, is to equip you to go out and to tell the truth, the greatest message ever, to people who are perishing. And it's also to help you be bolstered in your faith, to grow in the knowledge of the Lord, and to be equipped and strengthened in that what you believe is real. I'm sick of all these deconversion stories. I'm sick of Christian kids going to college and leaving. And we need better apologetics within the American Christian community. And that's why we make this podcast. So I hope this has been helpful to you. I hope you will use this. I hope it's been an encouragement. And uh, we will be back next week to talk about another worldview, go through the seven basic questions, and look at is it logical, is it factual, and is it livable? Thanks again so much for being with us today on Christ, Culture, and Coffee. We appreciate you, and I will see you guys next week. If you enjoyed the show and felt that this podcast was beneficial to you, please be sure to subscribe and leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. Also, if you become a Level 4 supporter on our Patreon page, you can get yourself one of our stoneware, Christ, Culture, and Coffee mugs, as well as a t-shirt and a sticker. We are available on all podcasting platforms as well as YouTube, and we are also available on all social media platforms. Thanks so much for listening to Christ, Culture, and Coffee.